praying all week that I would have the grace to understand this passage. All the way up until about 30 seconds ago. <laughs> Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Funny thing about turning to Malachi chapter 4 in your Bible is there actually is no Malachi chapter 4. It really doesn't exist. You say, uh, that's ridiculous. It's in my Bible. <laughs> it's in my Bible, too, in my English Bible. It's not in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible has three chapters. It goes all the way from uh, verse 1 to verse 24. The six verses of chapter 4 are actually in three chapters in the Hebrew Bible. It's just interesting. Um, but the subject matter that started in chapter 3, verse 13, continues all the way to chapter 4, verse 3, technically. It goes the same subject as being talked about. So when we cross over from chapter 3 to 4, don't think you're like crossing a river. You know, you come to the river and you've got to stop, like this is the boundary. And then you've got to resume everything in chapter 4 like it's something different altogether. It's not how it is. Chapter 4, 1 is a continuation of what we talked about last week. Last week, we saw a very clear distinction between people. Look at verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. So you again will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Very clear distinction. We talked about it last week. People that are righteous, people that are wicked. There's people that are serving God. People that are not serving God truly. Verse 14, some people said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it to do that? We talked about that last week. There's this distinction being drawn in this section. Tonight, again, we're going to see that distinction as we look at the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and we'll start with that. The day of the Lord is found in the first three verses of chapter 4. It says, Therefore, behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant, every evildoer will be chaff. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will, neither, it will leave neither uh, root or branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, or the day which I am making, says the Lord of hosts. The word for, in chapter 4, verse 1, connects what's gone before with what follows after. It says, for a behold, a day is coming. It's not a day that had already come in the time of Malachi. It is a day yet future. It's coming in the future. The word behold is there to, to, to indicate to us that it's a, a thing, it's a fact that's sure. It's definite. It's going to happen. It's certain. There's going to be a day coming called that we refer to as the day of the Lord in several passages in the, in the Old Testament. Now that, God says it's going to happen. But what day, what day is this? Is it a 24-hour day? We talk about the day of the Lord Maybe you've heard that term thrown around in the future. Is it a 24-hour day? Now, there are many 24-hour days mentioned in the Bible. For example, the days of creation, which are 24-hour days, by the way. Some like to, many Christians nowadays like to walk a line between uh, evolution and creation, trying to make the evolutionists happy to pretend to act, act like we're intelligent like you guys are, so we accept a long age for you know, each day. We don't, we're not so ignorant to think that each day is 24 hours. And yet the Bible makes it clear that each day is 24 hours of the days of the creation. And, and so there are 24-hour days in the Bible, and that's some of them, okay? But this day of the Lord is a period of time. It's an extended period of time in the future. Uh, it's mentioned several times in the prophets. Something like 13 out of 16 prophets talk about the day of the Lord. Um, there, have been many, there have been times in the Old Testament history that have been referred to in the past as the day of the Lord, 
brief time of judgment. For example, Joel chapter 1 and 2 is referred to as a day of the Lord when the locusts came and devoured everything. It's kind of a precursor to the future day of the Lord that's coming. We're speaking of the day of the Lord yet future. Nothing that happened in the past like the locust thing in Joel. And this is going to include many events, this day of the Lord. It's going to include things like judgment on the nation Israel, judgment on the Gentile nations. It's going to include the tribulation period, the second coming of the Lord. All these things wrapped up in the day of the Lord. It's an extended period of time. It's going to be at the end of human history. And so as we look through the Old Testament prophets, all these passages in the Old Testament talk about the day of the Lord. Many things are associated with the day of the Lord. Usually, usually pretty much a lot of bad stuff is associated with the day of the Lord, like slaughter and devastation, lamentation, calamity, terror. It's going to be changes in the cosmic order, all kinds of things like this. And there's many things we could say about the day of the Lord. It would be to take probably another uh, several messages to cover all that. But we're going to talk about what Malachi 4 says about it. We're going to zero in on what he says. And he says this. In the day of the Lord, there is the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Same, same subject we covered last week in chapter 3. And what's going to happen to these people who are righteous and wicked in the day of the Lord? day of the Lord is like two sides of a coin. Uh, the one side is, on one side of the coin, there's going to be judgment. On the other side of the coin, there's going to be salvation. It's going to be a time of God's wrath for some, a time of God's blessing for others. It's going to be, as verse 5 says, look at chapter 4, verse 5, the great and terrible day of the Lord for the wicked. But as verse 2 says, for the righteous, it's going to be a day of healing. Now, so once again, as we saw in, in verses 13 to 18, the distinction, the distinction is being drawn between the righteous, between the wicked, very clearly. There's always a distinction in the Bible between the righteous and the wicked from God's point of view. As we said last week, people blur that line. You know, we're always, you know, we... People say they're Christians. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody's born again in America. Everybody goes to church, supposedly. Everybody's righteous and religious and all that. And yet we know the Bible makes a clear distinction between the two. First of all, notice that this day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment for the evildoer, verse 1. It's going to be a day of judgment for the evildoer. It says the day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer, see that? The arrogant and evildoer will be like chaff. That day is coming, it will set them ablaze. It's talking about the anger. When God gets angry, often in the scripture it talks about him in connection with fire and, with, uh, and burning and fire and things of this nature. And Deuteronomy 4 is a passage that talks about it. Uh, it's, it's Deuteron Deuteronomy 4 is warning of God's anger over disobedience to him because of idolatry. And in Deuteronomy 4.24 it says, For the Lord your God is what? He's consuming fire. A jealous God, and it repeats that in Hebrews. Uh, for example, he's a consuming fire. He's going to, he's a God of wrath. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, the Lord says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire, and it's going to burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Again, Lord's wrath compared to fire. Psalm 2.12, the Lord has a message for all the kings of the earth who oppose him. He says this, I'm warning you, kings, do homage to the Son, ultimately the Son of God, that he become not angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Kindled like fire is kindled. Now, this generation doesn't want to hear about judgment of God. You, the, those of you who go out and, and talk to people on a regular basis, you know that 
They don't want to hear that message, but the Bible is full of the subject of the, judge, the judgment of God. God is going to, for all those who reject Christ, God is going to pour judgment upon them. That's what it says, upon the evildoers. There's a time coming, the day of the Lord I'm talking about now, and especially for Israel, as, as Malachi 4 is talking about Israel. There's a day coming when which like, it's likened to a furnace that burns. Now, the furnace referred to here back in that day was an oven, the ovens that uh, people in Israel used to cook in. And, and what they would do, it, it, you know, nothing uh, uh, you know, complicated here. They would just build a fire within the walls of the oven and build extremely intense heat, far more than on the open fire outside, and then it would, it would, it would burn. And the, and the Lord, day of the Lord is compared to that. It's going to be a time of intense judgment, fiery judgment. All the arrogant, it says, and every evildoer will be chaff. Now, the arrogant, by the way, and evildoer are not two different groups of people. They're the same group of people. Just like 3.15, look at chapter 3, verse 15. These people said that we're mocking God. They said, we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. In other words, they said, the people that are really blessed are the ones that... Are not that are wicked, they said. So that was a blasphemous statement, but those people there that were arrogant and the, those doers of wickedness were the same group. You remember the arrogant? In that verse, arrogant, arrogant means boiling over with pride. These people are boiling over with pride, the arrogant ones. Same thing in chapter 4, verse 1. And their pride that they're boiling over with causes them to be in defiance and rebellion against God. And he says, in that day, in the day of the Lord, these people will be chaffed. Now, the chaff is a part of the, uh, of the wheat that's worthless. When the, when the farmers in Israel would get rid of that part of the wheat, they didn't need that. Psalm 1 compares the wicked to chaff. It says in Psalm 1, they're like, the wicked are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The day, that day's coming. When this is going to happen, the day of the Lord is going to set them ablaze. Can you imagine this judgment? Destroy them, set them ablaze. So that it will leave neither root nor branch. You know, however all this comes about, and when you study this, I, it's, it's hard for us to envision this, to imagine this, or understand this even. That's why I was praying for grace all week to understand this. And uh, it's difficult to understand all these things, how they're going to come about. We don't know how they're going to come about exactly. However, it is going to come about. There's going to be a total destruction of the wicked that, in that day. You know, usually a fire, when it's burning through a forest or something, leaves something, maybe some scrub brush behind or something. But this here says that there's going to be neither branch nor root that's left. The Lord's going to see to it that there's a total judgment on the wicked, total destruction on the wicked. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, the people said, where's the God of justice? Again, another blasphemous statement. Well, here he is. You want the God of justice? He's, he's coming. One day it's going to happen. He's going to judge the wicked and the arrogant. Time of judgment for the wicked in Israel. By the way, it's also a time for the judge, a judgment upon the whole world. Look with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 13. You can see this is one of the passages here about the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, verse 9. Yes, we're talking about Israel in Malachi 4. Also going to be a day of judgment for the whole world. Isaiah 13, verse 9. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. How does it describe? Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Wow. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. 
Thus I will punish who? The world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. It's going to be a horrible time for the wicked, not only in Israel, but in the world. It's going to be a dreadful day for the wicked. Now, don't confuse Matthew or Malachi chapter 4, by the way, with the doctrine of e eternal hell, as some people have done. Malachi 4.1 concerns judgment of the people on the earth in the day of the Lord. And in this, I agree with Charles Feinberg, who said, concerning Malachi 4.1, Malachi 4.1, the passage speaks of judgment on the body, the physical body of the wicked. The souls and spirit will be judged at the great white throne judgment. I say that because there are some people who try to use Malachi 4.1 to, to say hell's not a place of eternal fire, it's, it's, and they teach the doctrine of annihilation from it. People are annihilated in hell. And they point to this right here. Clark Pinnock, a guy who back in the day was kind of going back and forth with the Bible and what he believed, he said this about Malachi 4.1. The Bible says, the Bible uses the imagery of fire consuming, consuming people, not torturing them, what is, what, not torturing what is thrown into it, just consuming them. The images of fire and destruction together strongly suggest annihilation rather than unending torture. And then he uses Malachi 4.1 as a case in point to cite his case. But Malachi 4.1 is not speaking of hell. It's a, hell's a harsh reality. We know that. Certainly nothing to rejoice over, but make no mistake about this. Malachi 4.1 is, is not talking about hell. Hell is not a place where people are annihilated. It's a people where people burn and are punished forever. Now, today, as I said, not a popular message. People don't want to hear about these kind of things. People don't consider, people in America don't want to consider God as a God of judgment. They hate the thought of it even and repulses them because, you know, as you guys all know this, they talk about the love of God, everybody's going to heaven and all this, people dying at the funeral. The guys, everybody in the funeral that dies is going to go to heaven. They always say that. They think that, people in America think that, you know, judgment of God is for serial killers or maybe the Hitlers of the world, those kind of people, but not for the average American. How could God judge the average American like that? Americans don't think about that. They're too busy doing other things, right? I, I read where somewhere where, listen to this, the God of America is a feeble old man who would never send anyone to hell except for the very worst of people. This God that many people, many Americans like to imagine, this particular God grades on a curve and a very lenient one for that. And a lot of people think that. Well, I'm not so bad. God wouldn't judge me. We're always looking to soften the judgment of God, aren't we? All of us want to soften the judgment of God, but God says this is how it is. It's all too real, this judgment of God in the future. There's going to be judgment for, on all the evildoers this day of the Lord. And then secondly, it's going to be a day of victory for the God-fearers, the people that fear God in verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You're going to tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, strong contrast here, the Lord's going to deal with the evildoers, as we've already seen, have seen in verse 1, the way he wants to, but he's going to deal with those who fear him in a totally opposite way. But for you who fear my name, just like the wicked in Malachi 4.1 uh, were of the same sort as the ones in 3.13 to 16, 
where they said, your words have been arrogance against me, the Lord says. And then they said, it's vain, vain to serve God. Just like that, the people in chapter 4, verse 2 are, are of the same sort as chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord gave attention, and we heard it, and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. You know, people claim to know the Lord. Two things we know are certain about them. They fear the Lord and they esteem his name, don't they? they, high, they we hold his name in high regard, have a high view of God. Now, what's going to happen to the people who fear the name of God? Well, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. There's a challenge for you. <laughs> Son of righteousness, S-U-N, son of righteousness, will rise with healing in, in, healing in its wings. What is the son of righteousness? Well, there's a lot of talk about what it is, but I believe with many people that it's the title for the Messiah. I believe it's the Messiah. He's the son of righteousness. Why do I say that? For one thing, God himself is compared to the son in the Old Testament in different places. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a son and a shield. And then there's a promise given in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20. It says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And that verse is fulfilled and quoted again in Revelation 21, 23 in the new heaven, where it says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon or to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So God himself is compared to the Son in many scriptures. And then if you would, look at Luke chapter 1. Go to Luke chapter 1 to see the prophecy of Zechariah. Luke chapter 1. Zechariah has promised a son. The son's going to be John the Baptist. And he proceeds to, in verse 67, he proceeds to start a prophecy. Um, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, Blessed be the Lord of God of Israel. He's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And, and he goes on. Look at verse 20, 76, talking about John the Baptist. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of Christ, prophet of God. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, to Christ, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God which, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, there's, if, if, there's two references here from the Old Testament that are quoted. One, and they both refer to the Messiah um, whom John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for. It says there in verse 70, 78, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. That is a reference to the sun of righteousness rising in Malachi chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 1, verse 2. Um, it's, it's, and it's in a messianic context. Zechariah is speaking to the Messiah whom John the Baptist will precede. And so he says, this is the sun uh, that's going to rise. And then Zechariah also quotes Isaiah 9, 2, verse 79 of Luke 1, to shine upon those who sit in darkness, the shadow of death. He quotes Isaiah 9-2 to refer to Christ. Um, and Matthew quotes that passage in Matthew 4. Same passage, Isaiah 9-2, those that, saw, that were in the land of darkness, a light came and sprung upon them. That's talking about Christ, Matthew tells us. 
Christ came through the land, and Christ was the light, and he shone upon the people to see the light of the glory of God. So who's the light? Well, we know it's Christ, right? John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we could go on. Revelation 22, 16, he's called the morning star. All these references to Christ. So, so um, especially in Luke 1, it's obvious to me that the son of righteousness in Malachi 4.1 is the Messiah. Now think about the physical son for a second because Christ is compared to the son, the physical son. The son gives light. And, yet, and the son of righteousness, who is Christ, is going to bring light to people who are in darkness, right? That's what the son does. It lightens, this, it lightens the earth until the darkness is gone. And that's what the Lord is going to do in the future. That's what he's always done. That's what Christ has always done. Always given light. Colossians 1.12, Paul says, Thank, he thanks God who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he says, for God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the kingdom of light. He's taken us out of darkness and saved us and brought us into the kingdom of light. We're walking in darkness. We're spiritually dead in our sins. Christ comes and he saves us out of that and brings us into the light. And so we walk in the light, 1 John. I think Charles Wesley said it best in the hymn, uh, and it can it be that I should gain. This is a great, some great lines here about this. He says there, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray, a ray that was alive. I woke the dungeon flamed in light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, when Christ imparts life, life to a spiritual soul that's dead, it's like dungeon in flame, uh, like a light inflaming in a dark and dreary dungeon. He, he, flames, he, he, he fills us with his light. He gives us his light. He's the son of righteousness. That means he also imparts to us his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. By God's doing, it says, you are in Christ Jesus who, brings to, who became to us wisdom uh, from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Four things it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ became to us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He's everything to us. But in this case, he became our righteousness. His righteousness was credited to our account. Now, in, the, in the ancient Near East, it was common to think of the sun's rays as the wings of a bird, by the way. People thought of it that way. Sun rising like the wings of a, with, like, with the wings of a bird. Psalm 139. Nine speaks of the wings of the dawn. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, it says in Malachi. Now, the sun's absolutely necessary to sustain life on this planet, without which we'd all die. We have to have it. Think of all the, the things the sun does for us. Think of what it does. Plants get the sunlight and convert that to, to food energy, right? And then they, the, the plants feed animals. Uh, cows eat f food and uh, plants and things like that. We have vitamin D from the sun. It's our major source of vitamin D. The sun alleviates depression for people. And you ever, if you've ever lived up north and you've endured the winters up north and it's been gray skies day after day after day after day, right, Bob? And it just never ends, right? And you think, when's the sun ever going to come out? About a year from now? And people get depressed up north and they, and they don't get the sun and they, they're affected by that physically. And they're so happy when they see a ray of sunlight. Wow, what a great day when that happens, right? Sun provides warmth and light. Physical sun then becomes a source of healing to people. We've got to have the sun, the rays of the sun. In like manner, the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, of righteousness, who is the Messiah, will bring healing. That word is used in the Old Testament in different ways. 
the word healing. It's the opposite of disease. It's the opposite of disaster. It's the opposite of trouble. And it's, there's this parallel thought. There's, there's abundant peace included in the healing. And the future, in this future context in Malachi 4, the, the ones who fear God will experience true healing in the most comprehensive sense of the word. They're going to know real life, real peace from this world. They're going to be delivered ultimately from the world in a permanent sense. Now, what does that got to do with us? Well, the blessings of the, we're still blessed in this day and age. Even though we are in this world, we experience tribulation and troubles in this world. If we know the Lord, we can still enjoy inner peace, can't we? We can still know him and enjoy his peace. <clears throat> Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me, he says, in me you may have peace. In the world, you know you're going to have tribulation, he says. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So we can have peace in Christ even now, even though we're, we're still here. In the future day, is going to be deliverance. Let me ask you a question. What's the ultimate source of healing? Well, Mike said it this morning. It's the atonement. Rob read Isaiah 53 for us this morning. Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That's the healing we're looking for. That healing, is, as Mike said, is not healing from physical disease. It's healing from sin. We're healed spiritually, healed from our sin against Christ, against God. Now, there's two results from all this. These people that are fearing God in the future day, in the day of the Lord, and God is going to have the Son of Righteousness rise with healing in His wings. Two results are going to occur. Number one, it says in verse 2, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. <clears throat> You know, the calves have been pinned up for a while, an extended period of time. Some think even for an entire winter. They've been pinned up. They're restless in their, in their stall. They're, it's, 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 they want to get outside in the sun. They want to run about freely. They want freedom. And so these calves are finally released from the stall, and they get their freedom. And what do they do? They skip about. The word means to paw playfully on the ground. They skip about on the, on, outside in the sunlight. They're thrilled to be out there. They're joy, joyful. And this is a picture of how it will be for those who fear God one day. They're going to be joyful because the Son of Righteousness is risen with healing in his wings. And then secondly, they're going to, it says you're going to tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Those who fear God, you know, a lot of times people who fear God have been trodden down in their lifetime. They've had to experience a lot of persecution maybe from the world or problems from the world because they're believers. Those people are going to be the ones doing the trampling in the future day, it says. Triumphant kings in the Old Testament often participated in a celebration when they beat their enemies down and, and, uh, that, were, that were rebelling against them. And they were victorious, and so they had a parade. One commentator says about this, the Jewish remnant in that day will conquer the surrounding nations, according to Isaiah 11. They will plunder the surrounding nations, according to Zephaniah 2. They will be given honor and praise among all peoples of the earth, according to Zephaniah 3. They will be given a double-edged sword to inflict vengeance on the nations and to carry out the sentence written against them, Psalm 149. There's a lot of things, a lot of things to be joyful about for those that fear God in that day. They're going to, they're going to have a, a time of victory. It's going to be complete. Back then, by the way, the custom was in the times of war, if they beat their enemy, if an enemy was beaten down, they would stand on the necks of their victim, signifying they were victorious. So there's going to be complete victory in that day. The Lord says in verse 3, he says, this is the day on, that I'm preparing. You could translate it, the day I'm making. I'm preparing this day, this day of the Lord. 
not going to be an accident. It's going to be on purpose. The Lord is the one doing it on purpose for the twofold reason of bringing judgment on the wicked and blessing to the righteous. That's why he's doing it. That's the day of the Lord. And then finally, look at verses 4 to 6, their final words. The final words. Verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now Malachi closes this book with some advice to the people of Israel. By the way, the people of Israel and Malachi are not very obedient. They've done all kinds of evil things. They have, as we've seen, they've offered sacrifices that were against the law of Moses, lame, blind sacrifices. They have married pagan wives. They have treated divorce lightly. Uh, they have uh, dishonored the name of God. They've said statements against God, blasphemously, and all, and all these things. And so here's some advice that Malachi has at the very end of the book. And by the way, these are not the only, only the final words of Malachi but also the final words of the Old Testament. Now, if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> and I know a lot of you have been doing it this week, um, you've noticed that 2 Chronicles is the last book of that Bible. Malachi is the last book in our English Bible. Same content. Either way, they just have a different order than we have. We change that order, not them, by the way. You think that, but Malachi is the last book written chronologically. Now, you think that Malachi, when I'm reading this, I'm like, why does it end with a curse here? That's what I'm thinking. Why isn't it like there's some kind of rah-rah, you know, cheer given? Or, or maybe, you know, you can end with a prayer for the people or a word of encouragement. Let me give you a final word of encouragement here. Hang in there, guys, you know, or something like that. Not, none of that. He just lays it on them. And, it, and that's how it ends. There's, there's, first of all, a reminder, and there's a prophecy that he gives at the end. First of all, there's a reminder in verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in horror for all people. We're reminded not to forget the law of Moses. This is two of his, of his two last bits of advice. This is one of them right here. Don't forget the law of Moses. This is a command. And the word remembrance here doesn't mean just to not forget something. It means to act accordingly. Do what it says. It's the idea of doing what, what you're remembering. The people will remember the law of Moses and then do it. Now, you all know that Moses was given the law at Horeb and Mount Sinai. That was back in Exodus 19. The Lord was given the, that law or Moses was given that law. By the way, he's called the servant of the Lord here. Moses is my servant, as, as you see also in the early part of the Bible. Moses was not just another guy in Israel. He's called the servant of God. That's a high honor. He had this intimate relationship with God. And the law was given for all Israel, it says in verse 4. All Israel. But how many obeyed it? Certainly not all Israel. And you can see that in the book of Malachi. But here in the very last book written in the Old Testament, the exhortation is to go back to do what? Go back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Go back to the beginning and remember the word of God. Don't forget the word that I gave you. Apparently, the book people in Malachi didn't do a good job of that, did they? They were violating all the commandments in the early part of the law of Moses. He says, go back and remember the word of God. It's basic to all you do as a nation. You know, as you can see, as I said, as you read through Malachi, you see all this widespread disobedience to the laws of Moses. Priests are not serious about teaching it. People are not serious about the worship of God. They're committing all kinds of violations. And so he says, look, you're neglecting the law of Moses. Go back to that. Don't forget it. You know, we can never, remember, we can never forget that which is fundamental to us as believers, the word of God. 
It's always the fundamental thing we have. We have. Time can pass. We can let our Bible sit around and collect dust. That's just the, all that is, is you're not opening your scriptures every day. All that is, is, is you're showing that you're dishonoring God completely. You have no regard for him when we do that. God gave the word to Moses, and as time passed, he gave it to others. And by the way, in Malachi, we can see that he talks about the origin of the scriptures. They're from God. And because they're from God, they're to be remembered, not forgotten. You need to remember the word of God. We're told again and again in the scriptures to meditate on the scriptures to hide them in our heart, to think about them, to do what they say, so we can be hearers of the word, doers of the word, not hearers only. Let me ask you a question. Are you reading his word tonight? Are you putting it in your heart? Are you thinking about it every day? Are you neglecting the scriptures to your own detriment? What are you doing with the word of God? At the very end of the Old Testament, we have, we're reminded not to forget the word of God. So that's a reminder. And then verses 5 and 6, there's a prophecy. There's a prophecy given. Not an easy prophecy to get that's given, of course. <laughs> you have to study hard to the very last word of the Old Testament, by the way. He says, Behold, I'm coming. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet for the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll, he's going to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children of their fathers, so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, we've got two people mentioned here at the very end of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Both appeared in, in the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Remember when they appeared with the Christ and Peter said, Hey, Lord, let's build a booth for each one of you. And the voice from heaven came and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. They appeared there, though, in that transfiguration. Some people think that they're, they're the final two witnesses in Revelation 11. So there's a connection here. The question is, in verse 5, who is Elijah? Who is Elijah? Well, I think this is one of those cases where there's a, a verse that gives multiple fulfillments. We know that at the first coming of Christ, John, Mike thinks this is funny. <laughs> it was a challenge, Mike. We know that at the first coming of Christ, John the Baptist fulfilled that role, right? We all know this. There are many verses that say it. Uh, the father of John the Baptist is speaking in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and he says it is he, John the Baptist, who will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In John 1, 21, John was asked if he were Elijah. He answered, no, I'm not. <laughs> not him. I'm going to make it hard on those guys that are preaching the word back in the, later on in the 21st century. <laughs> now, he was not literally Elijah, but he came in the power and spirit of Elijah. And I think that's what the meaning is. He was not literally Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, as Luke 1, 17 says he will. In Matthew 17, Jesus makes it clear that John the Baptist was Elijah that was to come. He says it very plainly. And he was coming to prepare the way for Christ by preaching a baptism of repentance. So we know that one fulfillment of this verse, as we talked about yesterday, all scripture has one meaning, could have multiple fulfillments going down in history. One fulfillment of this verse was through John the Baptist at the first coming of Christ. But notice carefully the wording in, Matthew, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Look, look what it says. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. What is that? That's the, day, that's the day of the Lord we've been talking about, the second coming. It's got to do with the second coming of Christ. There is an Elijah who will come, just as John the Baptist came, 
before the first coming of Christ. He'll come in the second, in the second, before the second coming. He's going to have a similar ministry to John's. And it's true. It's possible he could be very one of the two witnesses, one of the final two witnesses in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, 6, talking about the two witnesses, says they have power, these two witnesses, they have power to shut up the sky <coughs> so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Didn't Elijah pray and it didn't rain, and then he prayed and it did rain and it rained? So many think because of that it's Elijah. But will the literal return of will this be the literal return of Elijah in this time, the day of the Lord? Well, we know he never died. Went up in a chariot of fire. So maybe it is the literal return of Elijah. On the other hand, could be someone in the pattern, pattern after John the Baptist who came in the spirit, who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what I think is going to happen. I think it's someone who's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Pattern after John the Baptist, the same pattern. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know for sure. One of those two. One thing we know, he's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What's he going to do? Verse 6, he's going to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Same thing John the Baptist did. He's going to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and vice versa. What does that mean? Restore. The word restore in verse 6 is the key word in the Old Testament for forgiveness. It's the Hebrew word shuv. See it again and again. In the Old Testament, all, the prophets talk about it all the time. It means to turn, turn back, return to the Lord. They're always preaching. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. He uses it twice. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside, the Lord says, for my statutes and have not kept them. Therefore, he says, return to me. First one, and, and I will return to you. Second time, says the Lord of hosts. And so it's used there. Return to God. Uh, this was the ministry that was given to John the Baptist in the first coming. He's going to be given to Elijah in the second coming. He's going to preach a message of repentance just like his predecessor, John the Baptist, did. The hearts of the fathers are going to be restored to the hearts of the children, literally sons, and vice versa. In other words, there's going to be a repentance in that day. And families are going to be restored. Now, there's different takes on this. I don't want to go into all this because there's not time for it. But I believe, basically, that he's saying... There's going to be restoration of families and society and people in society that repent, that is. You know, the family is a basic unit of society. And as the family goes, so goes the nation. And witness our nation. Families are falling apart. What kind of a nation are we going to have one day? But it's very important that we have strong families. And when people repent, when they repent of their sin, when they turn, turn back, return to God... When they do this, and this is the language of repentance here being, being spoken in these verses, when they do that, guess what happens? Reconciliation naturally follows with other people. It follows up on the heels of that. If you're at odds with people and you repent to God of a sin, guess what? You should go make it up for the other person too, not hold a grudge against that person. You know, so if people say they repent to God and say, I've sinned against God, I've repented, and yet they hold a grudge against someone, they're still at odds with someone, they, their relationship with someone is out of sorts, how is that repentance? It's true that not only are you repenting to God, you're also reconciling with others. So repentance not only benefits the individual, but also relationships are restored. And society is, is benefited ultimately. It's always a great thing for repentance to happen because good things happen when people repent. That's what God wants. And he said, this Elijah is going to come and he's going to preach a message of repentance. And he's going to seek reconciliation among people. And they're going to be a remnant that are going to repent. And then the wicked are not going to repent. And they're going to be judged by God. 
What's going to happen if, this does, if no one repents? The Lord is going to threaten to smite the land with a curse, it says. The word curse here is the same one that Joshua, that's used in Deuteronomy and Joshua to talk about the ban that God placed on the cities of Canaan. He said, look, when you go into Canaan, and you're going to, I want you to destroy those cities to the ground. Get rid of everybody. I don't want those wicked people influencing my people. Get rid of them. Don't, don't take any of their things like Achan did in Joshua 7. Don't touch anything they have unless he gave permission at different times to do that. He wanted things totally destroyed. The cities of Canaan totally destroyed by, by Joshua, he says. And the Lord is saying here, if there's no repentance in the final day at all, I'm just going to wipe everybody out. And so it's a message of judgment. Of course, we know that people will repent. It's going to be a remnant. But God's always got his judgment hanging over people. Like Jonathan Edwards said in that sermon, sinners in the hang, hands of an angry God, there's always going to be judgment preached and repentance preached. So, the end, so we end the Old Testament with a call to repentance. <clears throat> That's how we end the Old Testament. The same thought, the same theme continued out throughout, throughout the Old Testament. The prophets were always harping on repentance again and again. Turn. They said, shoo. They said, turn. Return to God. Again and again and again they said it. And now... We come to the end of Malachi, and he says it again, repent. There's going to be a day of repentance in the future. should be a day of repentance right now. Always should be. He tried to get people to repent throughout the book of Malachi in their time. He's always pushing for repentance. And then Malachi ends. And then you have what? 400 years of silence. Nobody speaks. No prophet of God speaks. No word from the Lord is given. There's 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene. And what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus comes on the scene, and what is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostles come on the scene, and what is their message? God has commanded all men everywhere to do what? To repent. That's the fundamental message of the Old and New Testaments, repentance. So what message do we have for us tonight? Well, is there something you need to repent of tonight? Is there something you need to repent of tonight? You say, that's kind of a ridiculous statement because we always need to repent of something, right? That's true, we do. What day goes by that we don't need to repent of something? So believers should make repentance a daily habit, a habit of life. Now, we've re we who fear the Lord here tonight have repented of our sins in the sense that we've come to Christ and he's forgiven us of our sins and we're thankful for that. But we are also to maintain a habit of repentance throughout the course of our lives, always repenting. How many times has Mike harped on this subject? How you remember to do that? How I remember to repent? Take Malachi's advice. Stay in the Word of God. Remember the law of Moses. Stay in the Word of God. And as, as Malachi says in this book, and guess what's going to happen when you do that? Every day, almost without fail, you're going to be confronted with the, the subject of repentance. You did this wrong. Repent. Going to be hit you again and again, and you're going to be led to what God wants you to be led to repentance. And the Lord's going to be pleased with that. And that's exactly what the Lord wants from us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word again tonight. I pray we'll take the message seriously message of repentance, that we'll repent the people, something, something the people in Malachi's day did not usually do. I pray we'll take the opportunity to do that today, every day of our lives as we look to you, Lord, and walk with you each day. Help us not to forget your word, but stay in it. We pray we'll bring glory to your name. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.